when no something is actually going on in this individual what happens when they don't get the help and i don't think that this is just a partner thing i don't think this is like a parent thing i think it's societal we simply expect men to just suck it up and deal with it we just expect it Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. Incarnation of the Stigma is Curable uh, events that the Promethean Project is putting together for the year of 2021. This all started in the beginning of, <laughs> of the year in January with this idea of really feeling that things were disconnected and, you know, really struggling with uh, some stigma that was out there about health and mental health and wellness in general. And so we we're really excited to start putting this together for everyone. And now we're almost done. 11 months in, one more month next next week to do one more event, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Joining me today is Sifu Rolando Garcia III. Uh, fantastic man, has been all over our podcast, I think three times. Yeah. Um, only guest that's had repeat episodes and not just one repeat, but two. And so really, really honored to have you here today. I am Steve Opolinik, uh, one of the founders and president of the Promethean Project. So really excited to have everyone tuning in. We are going to talk about masculinity and men's mental and physical health and wellness today. So I think uh, Rolando is a fantastic person to have on to talk about this. This is actually going to be a little bit different than how we've done stigma events in the past. We are actually going to keep it more of a conversation between between Rolando and myself, and really uh, do open it up to questions and answers towards the end of the conversation. I know we have some people watching on Facebook Live, so we'll, we'll go to Facebook Live to field any questions or answers. I'm actually going to just pull that up right now so I can watch for that to happen. All right, so we got that going. Uh, before we get started, I just want to talk about why we're talking about men's mental health and physical health and wellness and why it's really important. I'm going to read some statistics that I think are kind of eye-opening when you look at them, but as I'm also going to share a little bit of my own journey with this and why I think it's so pertinent to have this today in November, which historically is Movember, which is where you rock a, a mustache for the whole month and try to raise funds and bring awareness to uh, mental health through mustache awareness as well. So, yeah. um, so 
men's mental health. Uh, so the U.S. population is uh, of men is about 150 million men, and out of that, there are six million who have reported that they have de depression. So a significant uh, chunk, but also when we go into these percentages, it's really hard because it's underreported, which we'll get into a little bit more of uh, people's ability and men's specific ability to feel comfortable reporting about this and being vulnerable. So anxiety is about 10 million um, with 3 million of that being panic or phobias. Um, getting into psychosis and bipolar, there are significant chunks, uh, 1 million bipolar for, for men in the United States, 3.5 million total for psychosis or schizophrenic diagnoses, 90% of those are men after the age of 25, eating disorders, 10% uh, are men who deal with anorexia or bulimia, and 35% are binge eating. Suicide rates for men, specifically Caucasian men, are four times more likely um, than women. Um, and a lot of this has to do with, with causes related to social norms, uh, downplaying symptoms, reluctancy to talk. And Rolando and I are going to get into that a little bit more as we get into the conversation. But I just want to pre-offer this as we go through this. Um, one of the second highest killing cancers in men is prostate cancer. Um, mm. one in seven get that diagnosis through the course of their lifetime and 12.1% of men over 18 are considered in poor health. Now you add to that, that 27% of men in the United States report that they don't have close friendships and 47% of men don't feel comfortable talking and opening up about, you know, their medical issues, their mental health issues or their emotions. All of this kind of combines uh, together to, to make it a place where there's a lot of stuff going on, but no one's really talking about that. There's yeah. isolation. And, you know, that leads to men being two times more likely to have an addiction problem as well. So yeah. all these statistics are just to kind of paint a picture of what's going on for men with men's mental health and physical health and wellness. And when I say men, I mean people who are born men, but also people who identify as men too. Because yeah. remember, this is a construct of who we are. And so it, it all the social norms, the reluctancy, it's all painted into this picture of what it means to be a man. Mm -hmm. And then before Rolando and I talk a little bit more, uh, let me just hit you with one more thing that I found really interesting. When you look at the definition of masculinity, it says qualities or attributes regarding the characteristics of men. And then below it, it has a little blurb that says, handsome, muscled, and driven. He's a prime example of masculinity. Right? That's all you, Steve. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> well, description of you. No, it's very true, but that's not what- <laughs> <laughs> That's not what the ball is about. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what it's about. I mean, in the, in the definition of the dictionary, it yeah. has that definition of what it means to be a man. And it creates this construct that if you're not that, you are not masculine. And so our hope here today is to challenge that concept, to be open to having a conversation around these things and really breaking, breaking the stigma apart and really talk about what it's like to be a man, to, to have this space, to be vulnerable and to, to practice these things so that we can start breaking the stigma down and, and being more aware supportive and connected.
What were those qualities again? Handsome. Handsome, driven, and muscled. Driven. Muscled. Wow. Um, I, I'm I'm wondering. I mean, I, the statistics that you that you listed are just just so just dumbfounding to think that so many men feel that way. And um, you and I are speaking about um, men speci specifically. One, us being men, right? Mm -hmm. But also number two. I mean, think of just think of how narrow that scope is, right? It, being masculine means you're handsome, driven, and uh, well muscled. That that's, I think, the the one thing we the one statistic that we did not necessarily look at was you know rate of obesity in the United States, you know, which is you know, very high, uh, and, and I think that so what does that what do, how do people feel about themselves? You know, definitely not going to feel well muscled, definitely not going to feel very handsome or driven. So I guess my question to you is, I mean, when you read these statistics, when you read these definitions, I mean, what picture does, what picture does it paint right. for you? And how did it feel for you when you first read this in yeah. preparation for this uh, conversation? <laughs> so I wrote it down because it was just really jarring to me because you know, I'm a child of the 80s and I grew up and I remember I actually wrote about this in, a, in an article I was uh, talking about. And I remember watching Schwarzenegger movies. Right. Yeah. And so I think one specifically was Commando, which is a, a lesser known uh, movie of Schwarzenegger, where he's just walking through the opening scene that you meet him. He's just walking through the forest carrying a tree. <laughs> on, his, on his shoulder and on his bicep and he's got a giant bicep and chainsaw on the other hand I actually so i actually recreated that picture but with like a mini chainsaw and like this little twig and i was walking <laughs> like i put it in the article and so which kind of speaks to me about what you just asked me is that that definition is very uh finite very narrow yeah. in scope and i yeah. think when I read that, I felt really lesser than, you know, really not connected to this idea of, you know, okay, I need to be handsome. I need to be muscled. I need to be driven. These are three qualities that the dictionary is telling me is the de definition of masculinity. And so not only am I processing this through my own mind of my own history of emotional overeating and my own history of you know, depression and anxiety that's kind of made me less driven by my own self-esteem issues. But I'm also pi picturing this through some of the clients I work with and some of the yeah. people I know and some of the people I really love who probably don't feel super connected to that definition, but yeah. are men. And then that leaves this overhang of Am I truly a man? And, you know, I, I referenced the Schwarzenegger movies because I think, you know, in the 80s and before that, Dirty Harry, like even all the way back to Westerns and Gunsmoke and, you know, old martial arts movies and things of that nature, too. There are some good qualities to that, but I think there's also this quality of painting a picture of this is a man and you must connect to this concept. You mm -hmm. have to be that person who can solve it you have to be well muscled you have to be the hero and you know i think it's it's a trope that happens in hollywood a lot but it's bled into some of that social narrative that we were talking about that what's your favorite what's your favorite western oh man uh so there's there's a western 
I really like Paint Your Wagon, which is not a stereotypical Western, but there's a lot of Western, but there's a lot of singing. I think that's a fun Western. And then I'm going to butcher the name, but there's a really good Western that I enjoyed that was, um, I can't even remember the name of it, but there's a memorable quote uh, that I really like from it is a guy's wearing a belt and suspenders and he gets shot and they're like, why did you shoot him? And he's like, oh, I don't trust someone who can't make up their mind because he had a belt and suspenders on, which connected to my <laughs> grandpa. But so, so those movies were, were enjoyable, but as I've grown, grown older, um, they're problematic to me. Right. They are problematic. I, there's um, it, it, one of my favorite Westerns, Magnificent Seven, actually speaks to this idea, speaks uh, to the reality of uh, masculinity and manhood versus the imagination of it. And in that scene in Magnificent Seven, I think they just had a big gunfight. And it's famous because you have so many, um, you have so many magnificent actors in there. You have Steve McQueen, you have Yul um, Brynner, and you have Charles Bronson. You have, you have all these like great, great guys that she's known for being like macho men. But there's this great scene in it with um, where Bronson. I think they had just finished some big gunfight, and they're defending them. For our listeners who may not know, Magnificent Seven, you have these um, seven cowboys who basically were asked by a village, like, please, you know, you have these bad guys who keep raiding our village, you know, taking our food. Is there anything that you can do? And then these guys said, well, what do you have for us? He goes, well, we have nothing for you. We could feed you. That's about it. And these seven guys kind of got together and said, what do you think? All right, we'll do it. We'll do it for nothing because it's just you have to do the right thing, right? And this big gunfight goes down and the kids of these peasants go up to Charles Bronson and said, that was awesome. You just beat the bad guys. That was so awesome. And he's like, thanks. You know, that kind of, you know, Bronson was a strong, stoic, silent, thanks. Mm-hmm. And then one of the kids turns around to him and says, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. And there's this magnificent scene that just goes in and, uh, I'm going to end up butchering it. But what he fundamentally says is that you don't want to become like me. All right. I'm a gunfighter and I go around and I shoot people. You want to be like your dad, you know, your dad who goes out into that sun-baked field day in, day out, and no one recognizes him. He's just a regular guy trying to provide for his family and trying to do the right thing. No one acknowledges him. He goes in every day, day out, day in, day out. And it's a thankless job, but he still does it because he understands his responsibilities. That's the kind of man you want to be, not me. And I think that that essentially is the kind of choice that before becoming men, we're boys. And we're trying to make these decisions about the kind of men we want to become. And I think part of the reason why, you know, there's a a high number of anxiety and depression, aside from uh, the narrow definition, is that the reality, the fundamental reality of manhood is just like what Charles Bronson pointed out in that character. It's relatively thankless. It's a grind. You know, it's not very heroic, Mm -hmm. but the definition is you have to be heroic to be masculine. You have to do something very heroic uh, to do it. 
the kind of thing that um, they write songs about, they make movies about, you know, something that um, would be worthy of Thor or the Hulk or Captain America. But right. when actual effective manhood is in place, if you go the one route, that's what leads to rugged individualism, that kind of toxic masculinity, because they're trying to maintain this image that even the Bronson character said, you do not want to go this route. This is wrong. You want to do the right thing. And doing the right thing is boring. It's thankless, but it's necessary. You will be unrecognized. And so having to make those two decisions, strangely enough, that movie was done maybe about 60, 70 years ago, but those situations are still very pertinent today. But now it's exacerbated because that's what you see in social media. The same kind of decisions are being made where you go on social media and what you were just talking about with Schwarzenegger carrying that log. Yeah, Schwarzenegger's all over the place, him in his prime, doing commando. <coughs> and um, strangely, they had a little bit on there with uh, Schwarzenegger being interviewed in between scenes of commando. And you, you remember like they had to put like paint on his face because yeah. it was all camo gear. And in between scenes, this is a very young Arnold. He goes, yeah, Hollywood thought that I was too handsome. So they put this ugly makeup to make me, ha you know, but I don't think it really worked, you know. So even for him, right, being muscled and handsome, he had to project this, right? He had to project right. this. But now that's exacerbated uh, for us because it's on social media you now now this choice is in your face but the other choice you know to grind it out to do the soft work to do the um, the kind of work that actually makes a man effective not only in relating to themselves and having a good understanding of themselves but being highly effective in interpersonal dynamics you know with your parents with your friends with your siblings with your spouse your partner uh, that's never highlighted in social media. That's not even highlighted in award shows or at work. You'll never see on social media, hashtag active listening, hashtag empathy, right? Hashtag giving, you know, you'll never see that. But these are the kind of things that makes a person, any person, but men specifically be highly effective, especially active listening because that's the kind of stuff that takes you away from that toxic masculinity that takes you away from having to project uh, manhood and just being a regular man and just a regular person being just a good person, handsome, driven, muscled. What about kind, empathetic, polite, you know, what about those? And you'll never see hashtag polite, hashtag kind, hashtag gentle, and see some guy with muscles posing. You'll never see that. And well, I think that's they, they, that might come up soon after this presentation. We'll, we'll I'd see. like to think so. <laughs> we'll I'd, I'd like to think so. Yeah. And um, I think that that's where I myself in my own personal practice, I've had conversations with colleagues about this. Um, and I'm sure you, you saw it very recently on, on a post that, I live in Manhattan and um, I had a, some guy ran a red light scooter and I, had, I told him, hey, that's illegal. That's dangerous. You shouldn't be doing that. Right. You shouldn't be doing that. And uh, this this individual instead decided 
instead of just taking it and being a mature person, you're right. I was wrong. Uh, that was illegal. I should never run the red light. This person reacted, felt that he had to go the route of that toxic masculinity. You don't tell me what to do. Who that beep, 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 beep. You think you are. So as I'm walking away, I'm already walking away. I'm going to enjoy my day. I have a great day. I have a great life ahead of me. This person gets on the sidewalk and tries to run me over. 30 miles per hour, trying to run me over on the sidewalk, tried to run a bunch of people down also. And in my head, I'm thinking, my God, what a, this is a very poor choice, right? Highly reactive, um, trying to assert himself in a situation where he's already wrong. Jumps out of the scooter. And I write all about it on, on my Facebook post. If anybody wants to take a look at it, read it. It reads like a screenplay. But the bottom line of that is that a colleague of mine said it very well. He said, the fact that you didn't put your hands on him, the fact that you didn't use your skills on him. And like you mentioned, I'm a martial arts sifu, Jeet Kune Do, 20 some odd years of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai, Filipino martial arts, those things. I did not put my hands on him because I made a commitment to myself. Because uh, my friend listed it. He goes, you're not just a sifu. You're like, 210, solid, your deadlift, trap bar deadlift is 500. You're a strong guy. But I don't want to be known for that. I think that it's one thing to be strong physically, but I think it's different to take a look at a situation, be proactive, and to be as kind as possible and as be, be gentle as possible and actually read this, the person. I took a look at this poor fella and I thought, no, this, this is all he knows. This is all he knows. I think if I hit him now, if I hurt him now, aside from the legal ramifications, it doesn't teach him anything. It doesn't teach me anything either. So luckily, when I was able to talk him down, you know, his brain kicked in and he just rode off um, nicely. But I think that, that that commitment to kindness and politeness and gentleness, uh, I think those kinds of men, if there's any anxiety or depression, I think those kinds of men need possibly more recognition. And that might help that if we were a society that uh, emphasized that more, not, not the handsome guys, because you could be a handsome person and not be a very good person at all. Not even good, not even good company. You could be driven. Usually the driven people, if they're not good listeners, even two martinis isn't going to numb out that conversation. Right. If you're well-muscled, that doesn't mean anything either. All it means is you spend a lot of time in the gym. But I think that if we allowed for our definition of manhood, but basically humanity, to reward um, kindness, listening, uh, politeness, you know, opening doors for people, and also just being gentle, using gentle tools when you're trying to de-escalate. I think if we were, if we put more focus on that, it might help a lot of those individuals who are feeling kind of bad, right? To then reach out, to then feel and say, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a little vulnerable right now. The truth is I don't have the words for it. I don't actually have a way of putting it into words. And I know you've had to deal with your own clients, Steve, in this regard. And how has this come up for you in terms of your practice? Because this is something that you approach, you know, as part of your profession. Um, I've approached it as part of my profession, but also my practice. What have you found when, in terms of like, what are the driving factors for those individuals to 
being open to those kinds of qualities and also the kind of things that lead them to feeling that anxiety and that depression. Yeah, I mean, I think everything you said makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a lot to this. I mean, look at that question about Westerns that you you kind of put out there when we're just off topic. What's your favorite Western? And I immediately went to this old version of myself. It was like, oh, yeah, I remember it was Charles Bronson. I can't remember the name of the movie. Yeah, that was funny because it was so badass. Right. And so there's programming in the brain from a very young age. Yeah, that. that you know, connects to, and it takes active work to kind of disconnect from this concept of, oh, Dirty Harry's, yeah, well, Dirty Harry killed a lot of people. That's why it's called Dirty Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But then also, like, had a terrible life, like, was really stunted. Uh, Clint Eastwood, again, in Gran Torino, right? Uh, This old, old guy, old school kind of guy, pretty racist, right? Until he opened up, (laughs) opened up to meeting new people. And uh, just, you know, he makes a sacrifice at the end, but like that whole, whole time, like had a terrible life because he was never connected to anyone, was never vulnerable, was never open to connecting with people. And so I think when, when I talk about my own practice of whatever it is, whether it's exercise or, you know, youth development or being a personal um, coach or trainer, or even, you know, just counseling, I think a lot of the things that get stuck are these blocks that we refuse to acknowledge, these programmed kind of constructs that get so implemented, like we were talking about with Hollywood, but also just who you spend time with, the men in your life, how you develop. I mean, even, you know, it's, it's not thought of a lot, but sexism hurts men too, in the way of it conditions men to respond in a certain way, because that's what a man does. Make, make fun of women, you know, uh, you're more like you're higher than, so how dare they talk to you? Like sexism affects everyone, right. But it's portrayed as it only affects women. I think it, it does definitely affect women, uh, so much. And I'm not trying to take away from that. I think that's, you know, disgusting and really terrible, but I also think we're doing a disservice to men to perpetuate those things as well, because it creates these constructs we're talking about. And then you have people who are dealing with loss or you have people who are depressed or you have people who are anxious or have had trauma and they, just like we use that terrible definition of masculinity, they say, well, I can't talk about this. I can't admit any of this because I'm that, that I'm going to be looked at less of a man. And I don't want that. That's the one thing I can cling to. Right. And so that's where you get things where it's like this toxic masculinity or when people will say, I love you to your friend or give your friend a hug. You know, yeah. they, they ha- always have to preference it like, Oh no, no, but we're just friends. And it's like, yeah, dude, like you don't have to preference that. It's okay to be a man and hug another man. It's okay to say, I love you to your friends. It's okay to share. Um, and so this const- these constructs get in the way of doing that because it, it really does, like you were saying, makes us feel like we're lesser than if we don't hit that metric. And so I, the work that I've done with people is really challenging that stigma and really saying, well, okay, how's that working for you? Because you still have the depression, you still have the anxiety, you still have the self-esteem or self-image stuff. So yeah. why don't we try another way? 
instead of saying this is what manhood is, why don't we redefine what it means to be a man to, to hashtag empathy, hashtag empathy. Hashtag empathy, right? Hashtag yeah. vulnerability. I, um, I, I might get myself in some trouble here, but I'll, I'll put it out there anyway. Have you had a chance to read um, Hicks and Gracie's new book, Breathe? autobiography i have not i think you've mentioned it to me but I've not. that i i have to say that to me to me it's it's um it's a story of his life him growing up but when you mention the word loss you know if there's anybody who's had to deal with some of the some of the greatest battles that you know anyone could ever have to go through you know he's had to go through it right um and his childhood is just really it's just one just one big strong cup of masculinity you know for the our audiences who don't know hicks and gracie is um he's considered the champion of um, brazilian jiu-jitsu gracie jiu-jitsu but he was growing up during a time when the point of jiu-jitsu was um uh, meaning you didn't get good at jiu-jitsu to become good at jiu-jitsu the idea was all-out fights all-out fighting and they had that in brazil in Valitudo is very different from MMA. No gloves. They allowed for uh, headbutting, and the fights could go up to like thirty minutes. You know, so and and um, at nineteen years of age, he had to fight a guy who was like in his mid thirties. Like, and I think at the time he was only maybe about five nine, hundred seventy five pounds, and the guy he fought was like mid thirties, like two hundred thirty pounds of muscle. Zulu. He had to fight that guy, and but on top of that, he had to. Um, go through the ranks of his older brothers and represent the family in, in a way that was just this very kind of strong, stoic, I'm up for any challenge. And he just kind of held it in. And he had two great losses in his life. One was his older brother, who was considered the champion of the family to die at the time, died prematurely in his mid-30s, hang gliding accidents. And, um, but the greatest loss, and he writes about it extensively in his book, and in my opinion, courageously in his book, is the loss of his um, eldest son, Hobson. And he, he speaks very openly about, look, sometimes I had no choice. Sometimes if the tears had to flow, they just, they just ran. Sometimes I could be in the middle of dinner with my family and we'd talk about him and we, I would just cry. And sometimes I'm on the floor and all I have is the pain, the vulnerability, the loss. And he was on a podcast recently with Jocko Willink. Superb. And he said something that I wish he hadn't said, but it was because it was so raw. You know, the courage of this man. He said, I allowed myself to feel the pain, the sadness, and allowed myself to feel impotent. Can you imagine, you know, Hicks and Gracie is considered one of the greatest fighters that ever lived, faced a lot of challenges, having come from a family of champions that faced anything down. And he allowed that word to be applied to him. He allowed that not only as a word to be applied to him, but as an experience in the mourning for the loss of his son, right? And for him to be so open about it, in my opinion, I believe that his goal was to be instructive, right? To be instructive, to use this moment uh, to be instructive to anyone who's going through this path of warriorship, that it's not just about the winning. Life sometimes will hand you some of the greatest losses you will ever feel. 
And sometimes, sometimes, and um, I think Thich Nhat Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh says this also. Um, he's a Zen teacher. Says sometimes crying is all you have. Sometimes the sorrow is all you have. Sometimes that, re and that's okay also. Sometimes that's all you have. So for both this Zen master and for this great bastion of jujitsu and masculinity. Uh, um, to be the, a god of that, to be uh, to be humbled, and to write so honestly and directly and speak to honestly and directly about it, says to me that for us men, uh, once we experience these things, it is it takes the greatest courage. It is the greatest courage for the warrior to be vulnerable and to feel sorrow. And to feel loss when it's there, when that is really all you have. And to be raw with your emotions and to be in the experience, which means you're present. You're not trying to project something that's not there. And that, to me, takes more courage. To me, okay, to me. It takes more courage than, you know, okay, some guy says a few things to you. Uh, in Manhattan, and then you decide the smartest thing and courageous thing is to try to run him over with a scooter. <laughs> you know, it's like no, just just take it in. I was wrong. I was wrong. Be ready to say that to the guy. Be ready to say that to your girlfriend, your spouse, your boyfriend, husband, whatever, your parents, to yourself. I was wrong, and let that sink in, because then you, we can grow. Then you can be impactful, not just as a as a man, but also just as a as a person good person then you can start to get in touch with those things but it's a it's a great book and it that takes up a lot of the read and that takes up a lot of my own reflection these days of what manhood is and it goes back to vulnerability like what we were just talking about yeah i think there's so so many great things there and you know with your background in martial arts, I think that's a really relative thing. There's a couple jumping off points I want to do on that. And the first, yeah. I have a couple of questions for you specifically yeah. around martial arts, because I do think, you know, we've referenced action movies. We reference Westerns, Kung Fu movies, martial arts movies. We've referenced jujitsu, uh, Brazilian jujitsu. And so I want to, I want to dive into that in a minute, um, because I think those, those things are often equated with masculinity. And I like how yeah. you kind of flip flipped it on its head and, and kind of talked about vulnerability and how important that is. Um, yeah. Before we get there, I want to talk about crying because you brought it up. It comes up in the book. And I, I want to challenge that stigma why we have people listening to, to really kind of talk about the physical process of crying and how much of a nervous system reaction that is and how important it is because, you know, in many societies, I think it, it's looked at as weakness or no, no, I can't show this to other people. No, no, this is, this is hidden. We don't, we don't share this, but my experiences are, it's really connecting. If you, yeah. if you open up and you share that, I also think biologically, right? Like there's endorphins that come with that. There's oxytocin, which is, you know, that hormone that's about connection, the, the mother child hormone and, you know, the love hormone and things of, of that nature. And then there's just the physical release of the, the calming of the sympathetic nervous system with parasympathetic response of, you know, calmness. And I think it's so interesting to take a step back from that and look at the stigma of it, 
when in reality, when if you can actually open up to it, there is a release, it's cathartic, but also if you've ever cried with other people, you can feel how connecting that is to share that moment and be vulnerable yes. in that moment. Yes. And I just, I just really wanted to throw it out there because it comes up in my job so much and people in session will apologize for crying or will say, no, no, don't, don't look at me. Let me shut off my camera if, if we're telehealth or if we're in a session, they kind of cringe in and turn inwards. And my, yeah. my direction with them is always like, if you're open to it, like I, I would really like to share this with you if you feel like you can. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't because obviously it's their choice. But I do think there is a, a strong connection there. So I'm glad you brought that aspect up of letting the sorrow in and, and allowing the process to happen because otherwise it's stunted. It just it stays inside of you and just comes out in you know, different I'm ways. I have a theater background and very recently, a great documentary is called Listen to Me, Marlon. It's about Marlon Brando. But they have these clips about his teacher, Stella Adler, who's magnificent. In it. And she, they, they quote them both and it's their voiceover. And you hear Marlon Brando saying that, you know, don't be afraid, you know, to feel the sadness. Don't be afraid to, to feel happiness. And then they cut to Stella Adler and she says, uh, it is against the nature of life to withdraw. Don't be afraid to take up space. Don't be afraid of who you are. And don't be afraid of what you're feeling, right? So this idea that um, we focus so much of our attention on our thoughts and forget the other 90% of our body, which is where our emotions and our urges and our right. desires come from. When I'm, this anxiety and depression comes in, it's because there's that disconnect, right? So uh, a couple of nights ago, I think Adam Driver, he was promoting his new movie, House of Gucci. And he's a former Marine. And he's in a play and he's talking about it. And, and he, he speaks about this very eloquently, very, very um, intelligent. He said that, you know, I'm a former Marine. And I try to bring theater to, um, you know, where Marines are stationed. Because when you're a Marine, you're feeling a lot of things. You're under a lot of pressure. Uh, I'm... I'm rereading Left of Bang, which is um, combat hunter programming for Marines. And they're just a big job. They have, to, they have to watch out for snipers, IEDs. You know, they're doing their OODA loop, their BAMSIS, all of these great things. So there's constant pressure and they have to make the best decision they can within milliseconds because they could lose everybody if they're wrong. So he says in this interview that when you're feeling all of those things, it's hard when you don't even have the words for it you may have the desire to communicate and connect but if you don't have the words for it you can't express let alone name the feeling it makes it very difficult and then he says something interesting that's when the anger comes out that's when the posturing comes out that's when oh yeah yeah that, that's when that guy comes out but it's it's rooted in fear but underneath that fear underneath that underneath that fear is pain that we're all experiencing that kind of pain so connecting to that crying that release is what relieves that pain um my former father-in-law you know i've been married twice and my father former father-in-law to me to me this is one of my my best memories of him this man i believe lost his mother at a very young age right very young age so he was, I believe, 13 years old when he lost her. And this is like the 30s, 40s, right? And her favorite song was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm. 
And this man, um, he, he has his wife is from Germany and he has two girls. But in fact, they kind of made fun of him because he was so sensitive. Now, just to give you an idea of what his sensitivity was like, he was the kind of guy who, if he even heard somewhere over the rainbow or heard it being hummed, he would cry because he would remember his mother. It's, it was a beautiful thing to see because he was so open with it, right? Even when his own family was making fun of him, right? <laughs> but, you know, so, so I'm just giving you what the dynamic is here, right? And then one day, I think we brought over like a karaoke machine or something or other. And um, I asked him, would you sing this, please? Would you sing this, please? It would mean a lot to me if you sang it. And, you know, he's older. He's in his like early 70s. And he sang it. And the way he, um, you know, he, the, he's Scottish Irish background. And the way his tenor voice would just shake. And the tears would just flow. So sometimes, and the, my point with this is that sometimes in America, the thought of crying is about weakness, meaning you can't take the pain. You actually cannot take the pain. There's nothing manlier than just, just eat it. You know what? Be a man. Just suck it up. Because aren't you a man, bro? Just, just take the pain. But crying doesn't mean you can't take the pain. Sometimes crying means you're expressing something very beautiful. And this is one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Uh, um, an older gentleman. To me, he was a gentleman. Very sensitive gentleman. Soft-spoken. Expressing his longing and yearning for his mother. And it was this song that brought it out. I'm not about to go and turn around and say... Yo, my bro, that's some weak ass shit. Oh, this is one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen for a son to express his love for his mother because somewhere over the rainbow, she's there, she's waiting for him. So to me, crying is not just an expression of, it's not an expression of weakness that you can't take the pain. Crying is when you can express the richness and the beauty of everything that you're feeling. I've cried when I've read poetry. Like if I read WBH, uh, WB Yeats, when you're old and gray and full of sleep, when you're old and gray, that always moves me to tears because it's about a love that is lost, right? Or um, uh, I forgot, some, sonnet number 116, Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, very famous. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impair, impediments. I'm not going to recite the whole thing. Right. The part that always gets me is when he says, um, love is not for his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. That line always gets me here. It always gets me to tear up because it speaks of a kind of love that will feel it, take it, take it, even, even if you're going to die, right? What a magnificent love that is. So to have tears in your eyes, have a little you know, frog in your throat because you experience something so beautiful, to me, that is fundamental to being human, fundamental to being a man, that you're willing to experience the richness and beauty of your own emotions. And if 
you belong to a society and buy into a society that doesn't allow you you're the richness and beauty of your own emotions then it's binary you are either a man or you're anxious and depressed ergo you are weak and that to me is wrong right that's wrong yeah thank you for sharing those i mean I, i'll share with you um not quite as poetic as the poems you're talking about but i was watching wandavision on disney plus which is a, a marvel uh episode yeah. and there's a significant part where I, I won't ruin it for you but there's a part about grief and one of the characters says what is grief if not love persevering and i thought that was such a i cried at that part which is it's a marvel movie right like so people don't really cry at it but like that hit me so profoundly just due to loss that i've had in my life and connection to to losing loved ones and it really informed me as a person to this concept of of beauty and I felt really connected to it, not out of sadness, but out of joy and out of expression of emotion. Yeah, it's which, love enduring. Yeah. It's love enduring. That's beautiful. Yeah. It really is beautiful because to me, and you've seen it on my social media, the cover photo, I have you know, nothing manlier than a collection of swords. You know, I, have <laughs> my, I have my collection of swords. But at the very bottom of that rack of swords is the Japanese character for Ai, which is love. Because warriorship is founded on love. If you don't have love in your heart as a warrior, then you're just you're just a jerk with a sword. That's all you are, right? right. And you, know, you have millions of them, right? But if you're the kind of person who carries that sword because you're of your love for family, your love for justice, your love of your fellow man, then yeah, now you're a warrior because you're full of feeling. You're full of feeling. You you're, and it's not just um, it's not just anger, right? It's not just you trying to prove yourself. You're trying to discover yourself as, as a man. But more importantly, you will allow yourself whatever feelings you are feeling in the moment. So when that champion, Hicks and Gracie, couldn't even see straight because of the loss of his son, he said it was like five years, five years of straight, unending, unending grief, right? And he, he sat there and he took it and he felt it. He felt it deeply, right? Deeply. Um, you know, for, for, for that kind, because then, then he can excavate it. He could unpack it. Then he can write about it in a book for, for the benefit of everybody. You know, to, to feel that kind of love for his son, a father's love for his son, right? Um, when WB8, you know, when he, he writes about, you know, I love when you're old and gray and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read and think of the soft look your eyes had once and of their shadows deep. How many loved your moments of glad grace and loved your beauty with a love false or true. But one man loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face. And now bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly how love fled and paced above the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars something like that wb8 this is amazing famously right. wrote that so poem yeah. he famously wrote that poem for a woman named maud gone who had he he loved she was an irish nationalist and he loved her loved her but she never Requited his love. 
So he said, I loved you so much. There were so many people who loved you, but there's one person who loved the pilgrim soul in you, the soul in you that was restless, the soul in you that had to keep looking further and further, but murmur a little sadly how love fled and paced above the mountains. So when it's gone, when it's gone. And that always gets me because he, he's talking about a kind of love that not only endures, but also the ultimate fate of love is that at one day, you will lose it. The people that you love or pe the people that you even took for granted, that all goes and there's lost. Now what do you do, right? The richness of that, that to me, that to me, right, is manhood. I'm going to do one more, just one more. Okay. My dad, very young man, very young man, so enamored with my beautiful mother, so enamored, and he wrote her a poem. I don't know the entire poem, um, but he, he wrote, he, the guy is, I, I can't imagine what he must have felt. And the title of the poem is uh, The Destiny of the Rose. And, um, and he says, if something to the effect of, if love is as petaled, bright, and sweet as your eyes seem to say, then there must be a season that is forever. Holy smokes. Can you imagine? You know, I, can't, I couldn't come up with something like that. But imagine the great feeling that was just bursting out of him. And one time when I was younger, you know, you're a teenager, you try to impress the girls. I wasn't particularly well-muscled. So I thought, all right, I'll write poetry. And I failed and I failed and I failed. And I'd go to my dad, oh, dad, you did this so well. And you got mom. How did you do that? He said something. And th this word stuck out to me. He said, son, you can't write a poem to impress a girl. Okay, how did you do it? He said, a poem is, ready for this? These are the exact words. A poem is a cry from the heart. And he was specific about the word cry. A poem is a cry from the heart. This, it's so deep in you and it comes out. No, to me, to me, right? There's nothing manlier than that. To be so in touch with your emotions that you can express it so beautifully that you can get connected to it, put it into words and tell the love of your life. This is how I feel for you. And that if we allow ourselves as men, women also, but as men, I think a lot of this anxiety, a lot of this depression, the stuff that's underreported, um, will start to be addressed because we are now getting in touch with our vulnerability, with our pain or with our fear and with our pain. And then once we get past that, the empathy, the compassion, the, the colleagueship, the companionship, and ultimately connectivity, connection and love. Yeah, I think there's so much to this that I'm sure we could go on and on because we've had three podcasts together and now we have this event that we <laughs> we keep exploring more on i, I yeah. do want to do a quick summation and, and and kind of go into maybe some questions and answers if any, anyone's watching who who has any questions feel free to type them in facebook live we'll get to them in a couple minutes okay. um but i do i do think there's a couple things here that that are really important and to question you know at the beginning of us talking there's a lot of uh, percentages and statistics about men's mental health and physical health. And let me be clear, all, all of those things don't just go away because of vulnerability and being open, but yes, that's true support 
and connection and the ability to open up and talk about these things lead to healing and, and continued support throughout your life and not resolution per se, but acceptance and connection and finding validation. And I yeah. think, you know, we can talk about, you know, depression and anxiety and extreme forms of mental health, but I really do think it comes back to vulnerability, accountability, connection, and community that make a huge difference in what it means to be a man, because this is how we reprogram. This is how we relearn. And this is how we kind of take that step forward and be vulnerable with others and share that and help others change. Yeah. And so honoring your emotions is super strong and super important and paying attention to how we do that, not stuffing them down, not running away from them, not avoiding them, but sitting with the power of them and the message of them is really important. You know, there's yes. thoughts, there's, um, emotion there's physical reactions and we need to pay attention to that and i think martial arts and exercise build physical awareness which is super important to have but we also have to do that that side part of doing emotional awareness and thought awareness and connect all of those things together to really be in that state of vulnerability and you know work through some of this stuff so i i you know, I'm really honored that we've been able to have that conversation today and really opening it up to looking at, you know, not just men as being born men, but but the identity of men and the construct of, of masculinity and really looking at how there are all these societal norms and internal norms and relationship norms that kind of get pushed forward and kind of create that construct, but really breaking it down and having each individual being able to define what being a man is for them and connecting to the power of being yourself. And that's really what it is that, that imagine, means. Imagine my friend, if we go back you know, to the beginning of our conversation about the, the definition of masculinity that you found and instead, you know, hand, being handsome, driven and well-muscled, you know, imagine if our conversation went that route. Let's talk about the handsome men that we know. And you know, you, my good sir, a very handsome gentleman. And let me tell you how handsome you are, blah, 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 back and forth. And let's talk about the quality of being driven and then the quality of the well-muscled body. I don't know why I have this, I have this faux British accent. It just came out. But uh, the, the idea is old-timey manhood, you know? Like yeah, old-timey manhood. giant right. dumbbells that you would press. Right, right. You know, can you imagine you know, how, where that conversation would have gone? Uh, and it wouldn't, we wouldn't have lasted, you know, this entire uh, conversation. It's like, yeah, well, it's good to be well-muscled, driven, handsome. Next. Right. Next. There's, there's nothing else to talk about after that. And there's, there's no richness behind it. Whereas with our conversation, right, we talked about a jiu-jitsu champion being a human being. We talked about my father writing poetry to the love of his life. We talked about, you know, the greatest, great Irish poet, Yeats and Shakespeare. Uh, we talked about WandaVision, right? We got to these statistics. All and these types of conversations could only have happened once we veered away from this, in my opinion, narrow and inaccurate, inaccurate um, definition of manhood. Because uh, and I'm glad that we went that route because it it makes for a more informative and educational conversation as a result. And I appreciate that um, yeah. we've 
been able to talk poetry and jujitsu and you know action movies and emotion and empathy we were yes. able to talk about sexism and you know i didn't really honor sexism as much as i wanted to it was very binary view of it there's way more to that well not honoring sexism but the concept that drives it obviously there's way more to it than just male female di dynamic um yeah. for our point you know i just kind of dabbled in how it affects and the pressures and constructs it, it puts on there. Um, I do want to get to some questions. We do have some sure. in the Facebook chat. I do sure. also want to say, you know, the title of this is masculinity is what you make it of it or what you make it. And I really liked that idea because it gives power to people who who may not necessarily understand that they have input and control over what the dynamic of being a man is. You know, you yeah. look at you look at people, uh, I'm gonna, I'm just going to use two sports people as an example, uh, Tyson Fury, who's yeah. been really open <laughs> about depression and addiction. He has been, right? yeah, Tyson Fury. And recently, A.J. Brown, who's a wide yeah. receiver, uh, who, who's been open about depression. So you really- know who else? Uh, the Rock. The Rock has the been Rock. open. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and so these are people that you would look at as pinnacles of, of manhood. Right, and they're being open. They're being, um, you know, vulnerable and talking about this in public, and that's a great thing to have. But I want to also challenge: like, it's not just these people in the public spotlight. It could be um, your dad. It could be your nephew. It, I mean, I know my nephews have taught me a lot about what it means to be a man in in ways that you wouldn't think of. Um, yeah. Painting my nails and being connected to painting my nails and being not feeling judged and feeling connected and how that responds to people. Um, yeah. But it can also be those people who are bullied in school. They oh, are yeah. men and they can define what masculinity is. No one has a one up. And I actually think like bullying is a real concept. Like you were talking about with that guy on the scooter is this concept of rigidity of emotion. It's like, well, you're, you're defying, you know, you cause an emotion in me. I'm yeah. going to stuff that down, but it's going to be expressed through anger. And so I'm going to come directly at you and take no accountability and direct and blame others. And that's where the toxic masculinity comes into. And though, you know, obviously everyone goes through things. We know that bullies are also projecting their own insecurities on people. And that's the act of bullying. So, you know, let me just, before we get to questions, I know I've said that like 15 minutes ago, but <laughs> I just want to point out is masculinity is what you make it. And being a man is individual and it is what connects to you and your identity of that. So regardless yeah. of what anyone tells, tells you, you have control over that. And so if you leave with nothing else, I want you to kind of leave with that ability is like, it is, you have control of what masculinity means to you. And 100%, 100%. All right, so we do have a question. So I'm gonna to go to that. Yeah. Uh, this is from Robin. Okay. They say, I feel like it takes a great deal of strength and vulnerability to be so open with yourself and with others. I may, I may have missed it in the beginning, but how does one, oh, on. begin the process, I think is what it says. My Facebook app just timed out. Okay. So how do you begin the process of being vulnerable and being open is the, the crux of the, the question. I think uh, to me, I know that um, 
I'll, I'll share this part of my journey because I'm, I'm in the process of um, writing my book about my martial arts journey, which started when I was six years old. And it's um, actually taking more time because of the emotions that are coming up, that, which I did not know were there. I did not know they were there. But I do remember, and I'm writing about it now, is that I was very highly skilled as a child and uh, in sparring in Taekwondo, which was, they were full contact affairs. This is the Philippines in the 80s. No one had mouth guards, shin guards, nothing. It was just, you got knocked out, you got knocked out. And we were kids, right? And it, it created in me, um, by the time I was 13 years old, it created in me this strange sensation that um, I couldn't feel anything which was bizarre. I couldn't feel anything it, like inside me. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand sadness. I didn't understand even happiness. I, there were a lot of things I couldn't feel. I didn't understand it. So here I was, this, um, I was captain of the Taekwondo team in the Philippines at 11 years old. There were a lot of much older kids, but I was picked for this, right? So I'm supposed to exemplify this strength, but okay, strength is one thing in, in physicality. But I was highly disturbed by the fact that I felt nothing for anyone as a young man, right? And I made the conscious decision later on to kind of abandon it. I thought this, this isn't right. I can't walk around as a machine. You know, here I am, freshman year, high school, everybody seemed to be having fun. And they talked about their emotions. I didn't have any emotions. I didn't understand what the emotions were. So I threw myself into theater. In theater forced me to connect first and foremost with myself and when that vulnerability started you were encouraged to be vulnerable you can't just walk on stage and be some sort of superman everyone will call you out for it no you're not superman you're, you're playing romeo and romeo and juliet you know and he's so vulnerable that he drinks poison spoiler alert he <laughs> drinks poison you know when he thinks his girlfriend is dead that's a lot to take in right so uh, you begin that process by first and foremost, in my opinion, really believing that your vulnerability is your strength. There's no real strength if you're not vulnerable. There's no real strength if you cannot acknowledge your own feelings, your own, what you're actually experiencing. And um, you may feel vulnerable because there's someone you really like and they don't like you. You may feel vulnerable because this uh, someone that you admired all of a sudden disappointed you, right? Or someone said they would show up and they'd meet you and then they don't show up and meet you. They said they'd text you and then they decide not to text you. You feel kind of unimportant. All of a sudden you feel kind of insignificant. Allowing yourself to kind of sit there and just feel those feelings, that takes strength. Because other people would just distract themselves. Well, I'll just see what's on TV or I'll just watch something on reels at Instagram or eat or drink or worse yet, you know, try to run someone over with their scooter. But when you're feeling something, sit with that feeling. Like Stella Adler was saying to her students, when you're sad, let that sadness take space in you. When you're happy, let that happiness, that anger, fear, that need you know, to be alive, let it take up space in you and give that emotion size. Because when someone is really in love, right, that emotion of love, which is 
a combination of the highest level of respect and compassion, but on the other side, the highest level of need, there's nothing more compelling when a man or woman is in love because the size of that feeling is so um, massive because you allowed it to be rather than just stuffing it away. So your vulnerability becomes your strength, which means when you're feeling something, give it size, breathe into it, and be that emotion. That would be my answer to that question. That was a great question. Yeah, fantastic question. I think fantastic answer. I would uh, just agree with you because <laughs> I think you, you you were really succinct in, in how you put that. But I, I would also say, you know, we spend a lot of time avoiding uh, emotions because fear of these emotions. And like we had mentioned a little bit earlier, that emotions aren't good or bad. They're just messages that kind of come to us. And sometimes those messages can be biological, like you don't have uh, enough dopamine or serotonin coursing through your brain. Sometimes they can be physical in the environment or relationship-based kind of responses, but they always come from somewhere. Um, yeah. We had an event on anxiety that I kind of put together last minute. And uh, that that's one of my main takeaways from my own experience of vulnerability is, is, is to be able to sit with it. Now, granted, there are things that compound that that make it hard for people and so for for you Rolando it, um you know doing theater was helpful for that for other Very people much. you know it could be theater it could be having that one really strong friendship that you you find supportive and you're vulnerable and you open up to them or even the smallest bit could be sitting with yourself and allowing yourself to feel that emotion even for five minutes before you go and do something or coping skill or distraction to move past that. Like these small increments are really important. Could be therapy. You know, maybe you don't have supports that you can feel open to because of trauma or trust issues. And maybe therapy is a good place for you to go for some people. Therapy is very important. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned um, therapy and, and uh, religion because one of the great things about um say catholicism and christianity is this concept of confession right because therapy is confession there's an unburdening all right and what does that mean that means that when you have no one to talk to and you're just carrying around this thing like you know forgive me father for i have sent okay my son what did you do well my mom told me to clean my room and under my breath i said no you're wrong. Terrible mom. I hate you. Right. Hey, that's not so bad. Three Hail Marys for you. Right. But for you to be carrying that, right. For you to be carrying that is a burden. And what helps you un get unburdened is when someone else just kind of goes, yeah, I heard you. They're not saying it's okay. They're not saying it's so bad. They're just saying, I hear you. I hear you. I hear this experience. Because when you're carrying a burden within you, if you're hiding depression, you're hiding anxiety, you're hiding grief, you're experiencing something that actually makes you feel invisible and isolated from the rest of the world. So reaching out to a, a professional, a therapist, right, or religion, or a confidant, 
right? Someone, you have to be very selective. It's like with your training partners. You have to be very selective uh, with your confidants because you, you, they need to validate and hear you and summarize what you're feeling in a way that makes you feel like, whew, I'm glad I got this off my chest. That I think that that's, that's a big part of it. That having that, I don't like to use the word outlet, but the ability to at least step away from the experience and just look at it. Sometimes that alone is relief in and of itself. Yeah. The practice of equanimity is being able to have that space before you react to your own reaction and can kind of find that space. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, having people you can go to and connect to, there's a lot of science behind co-regulation and what that looks like. Having animals that you can talk to, uh, dogs, horses, these these types of relationships with with pets can be really co-regulating. And there's some really interesting science on it about how heartbeats sync and they kind of connect to each other when you have that connection. And then also, Rolando, like you were saying, is having these, these you didn't say outlets, but kind of like outlets of expression of emotion, whether it's drawing or art or martial arts or exercise but in a way that you allow yourself to really feel those things instead of using it as an avoidance technique and you can start really small like we were saying about five minutes allowing this space and having coping skills to come out of it or you know an hour therapy session or whatever it is that really speaks to you so what I would say to that answer is not only what Rolando said because it was well said but also like start small it doesn't have yeah. to be this huge gesture of openness and vulnerability. In fact, sometimes that's more detrimental because you put too much into it and then you run away from it because like, oh crap, yeah. oh crap, that's too much for people to bear or that's too overbearing or they judged me. You can start small by doing it. I do this thing uh, before we move on with meditation is if I'm stuck when I'm meditating and I just have this anxiety or emotion that's like pulling me in all these different directions i'll stop and i'll say to myself all right for the next five to ten minutes i'm just gonna let this kind of seep into me i'm gonna follow my thoughts and my emotions and where they go and they go some crazy places i mean i've gone all the way back to fifth grade where i've you know hurt one of my friend's feelings and i'm still holding on to that and i'm giving it attention and I'm, I'm validating the emotions and not judging them and letting them happen. And then after 10 minutes, I'll, I'll kind of pull myself out and I'll go into the meditation. And then I fit really well into that practice because I'm not running away and not trying to push them down. I'm like, okay, there's something here. Let me experience that. Um, so it can be as I simple love, as that, you know, I love that you shared that because that's, that's the, isn't that the strange thing about emotions and memory? Um, and I think that's why people stuff those things away because you don't know what triggered it. You don't know. You could be just minding your own business, having a coffee in the morning. And then all of a sudden, your mind just kind of goes, oh, yeah, what about this? And it could be something you hadn't thought about in decades but then it comes up as a memory, you know, maybe something wasn't processed. Maybe it's asking you to process it. Maybe dig deep into it. I don't know, but that's the strange thing about emotions. That's the strange thing about um, why masculinity is so important to society and why this toxic masculinity is so important because it is an, an imposed approach to make an individual predictable 
not just to the society, but to themselves. Can you imagine, let's say you're a manager or a CEO and very important investor meeting, you're going to go in, you're going to ask for 250 million, um, you know, seed funding, whatever. And you're about to go in and all of a sudden you have this memory of like, like you, you, you picked on someone and you hurt them, but you didn't mean to. And now you're, you're, you're caught in this, in, in your mind and your emotions. The reason why, in my opinion, why these standards for masculinity, which are benchmarked for some sort of expectation is there, is because the human being is unpredictable. And, uh, and this applies not just to the arts, not just to psychology, but even in security. The human being is not just unknowable. The human being is unknowable even to themselves. They don't know what they're going to think next. You don't know what you're going to think next. I don't know what I'm going to think next. I don't even know what I'm, let alone what I'm going to feel next. So these impositions are there to make an individual, especially a man, be highly predictable. And now we take that on. We internalize that. And we try, try to make ourselves predictable to ourselves. And Rolando Garcia III, I'm a martial arts instructor. I'm a man's man. But why am I talking about my first father-in-law and you know, somewhere over the rainbow and I get kind of, you know, some allergies going in my eyes? Why? You know, because the truth, the truth is that these emotions is a way for us to kind of rediscover ourselves and to accept the power of our own, A, unpredictability, which B, makes us vulnerable to ourselves. That's our actual power, that we can change our minds. We can, we can accept our emotions. And we don't have to be this in a square box, um, predictable kind of individual. Be unpredictable even to yourself. And that starts with those emotions. And that starts with your vulnerability. Yeah. And I would just add to that. I, I love this concept. I don't know how true it is biologically or anything of this nature, but I really do think our connection and community, sense of community and asking for help are what makes humans humans, right? Yes. Like when you think about it, when you think about some of the animals in the wild, the babies of some of these wild animals are way more functional than the babies that we have as a human race, right? You know, horses, they get up and walk right away. And, you know, uh, there's this imprinting and genetic code of that kind of creates a, a response for survival. Right. And if you look at human beings and this is a play on some of that, but if you look at human beings, what, what do we do as babies? We ask for help. Yeah. We ask to be fed. We ask to be held. We ask for connection. We ask for, yeah. you know, granted it's not fully formed in words, but like the crying and that, that need for that love is really our superpower. And I think, you know, going back to the question about being open and vulnerable, it's also about you know, realizing like we're, we're made this way to be open and vulnerable and we get conditioned not to be. And so we have to retcon it a little bit and really work on it in smaller senses to get more comfortable with it. And then also, you know, part of that is taking accountability and admitting that sometimes we don't have the answers or sometimes that we're wrong or we've made a mistake because that allows us to be open in settings that we don't feel comfortable. And I think to add to that, I think part of the dilemma around um, this anxiety and depression is that what happens when you are vulnerable 
a good example is that, you know, you're the sensitive man and you're the one being made fun of by your entire family, right? So now, now what? You're the one who cries when Judy Garland sings somewhere over the rainbow. What's the matter with you, right? So now what do you do? Here we are, here you and I are, you know, we feel very accurate in our assessment. No, men should find strength in their vulnerability. But now as a society, what do we do with those individuals, those men who are open about it, you know, the power of their emotions, right? The power of um, those needs. How do we uh, create those lines of communication that allows for transparency, you know, and validation for that kind of experience versus what we do know in this, uh, in today's culture. Now, just suck it up. What's your freaking problem? Yeah, so, right? All right, so you're upset. What's the big deal? Right. There, there are bigger problems in the world. And that's where I think um, the world uh, just has it kind of gunked up yeah. that you, you they when someone does express their vulnerability, um, men specifically, in my opinion. OK, now what do you do when you get laughed at? Now, what do you do when you not not only did you just um, put yourself out there? What do you do when not only do you not get what you want? you get the rejection and then the embarrassment, right? Fear of embarrassment is a real thing, right? Yeah, that's why yeah. you don't, you don't have, that's why these guardrails are up. So it's actually in one of the st statistics about, uh, I didn't quote them, but one of the statistics about physical health is, is, uh, you know, men generally don't go to hospital for checkups or to their primary care for checkups because of fear of the hospital or fear of being told that they're weak or yeah. um, they're too busy or that fear of being embarrassed about something and yeah. the inadequacies of it. We're, I think men are simply accept, uh, expected, expected to really, and this is where I think the isolation comes in. Yeah. And I think this is where the depression comes in in that um, we're not supposed to have this kind of rich well of needs and um, unmet needs as that, which can be very powerful. Unmet needs, unmet expectations. So what do you do with a man like that? And what does a man do with himself when he does express? Like he goes to his partner and says, hey, I'm, I can't put this into words. Well, what is it? I don't know, I'm having a hard time. We'll just spit it up. What's the problem? Well, I think you just need to slip, you know, sleep it off when you no, know, something is actually going on in this individual. What happens when they don't get the help? What happens when they, and I don't think that this is just a partner thing. I don't think this is like a parent thing. I think it's societal. We simply expect men to just suck it up and deal with it. We just expect it, right? I meet my male friends and I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky in that um, I encourage, you know, my male friends, hey, let's talk this out. If, if this is a thing, let's talk it out. You know, and, you know, I'm okay. And this is actually a, a conversation I had with a friend of mine. And he was very vulnerable about a lot of things. But I said to him that, you know, you have to feel these things because that's how you honor the man in you. And I think you're right. Like when we're talking about re 
structuring these constructs, societal constructs of what it means to be a man. We have to normalize a lot of what we've been talking about. We have to turn, we have to turn towards each other. We have to allow that space for empathy and connection. We have to, you know, model it for the younger generation, for our family members, for our friends, for whoever it is, is, you know, that's the thing about genetics. There's genetic coding and we can break cycles of trauma and break cycles of, you know, this, this concept of what it means and pass it down to each generation through our actions and our own modeling, our own processing and our own vulnerability. Um, you know, and I, you know, I used my nephews as an example, but I think, you know, when you're young, you don't care what, what clothes look like. You don't care if you're wearing a pink shirt. You don't care if you're wearing, playing with a Barbie doll. You don't care if you have nail polish on. And we have to do more work like that to normalize that concept of, you know, there, there's a lot to this. And people often think binary about this and it's not that way. We need to change that structure. And, you know, I, I think it's awesome to see that with my nephews and to paint my nails with my nephews. And what, you know, one of my nephews, his favorite color is pink. And that's amazing. I love it's it. one of my favorite colors. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, I love purple. My... I'm, I'm walking purple on my shirt. You're rocking your purple. That's good. I love it. And the fact that we even have to say that, right, is conditioned response of like, well, men can't like pink or purple, right? And so like we start with these, these smaller concepts and we challenge these concepts and we normalize these concepts and we allow this space to do that work. Yeah. And the more we do it, the more it gets passed on and the more future generations of men do it and we change that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good way to kind of leave the conversation for tonight. Um, we're both open. If anyone's out there who's watching this later or has questions or wants to touch base or keep the conversation moving forward or wants to challenge any concepts, we're both open to the conversation and more than willing reach out to us. Rolando will be tagged in this. So he's available. I'm available. I love all of this stuff and I appreciate I you, sir. Love you, I brother. appreciate you. I love you, you, my brother. Thank, Thank you, you very coming. much for everything. Thank you.